Join me as we pray for our pastor. Lord, you're good. You came to provide all that we need day by day. Thank you, Lord, for this place to meet. Thank you for this congregation that has been generous with us and allowed us to do so. Uh, thank you for our pastor this week and the preparation that he has put in to prepare a sermon for us, Lord, that uh, you have prepared in advance. Lord, help us prepare our hearts now as we sit under a right administration, the right divining of your, of your truth, of your word. Or as we continue to understand why we do the things we do, what we're called to do on Sunday mornings and, and throughout the week. Thank you that you have brought us all here today, knowing, Lord, that before the foundations of the earth, you knew we would be here today, and, our, and that our hearts would need to hear what you have prepared for us. So, Lord, I lift up now this past week and all the concerns and worries for ourselves and for our pastor that that might uh, distract or cloud us today, Lord, back that they would fall away, and that your word would be supreme, that you'd be glorified through it. You have Pastor Mike as he shares now with us what you laid upon his heart, reminding him that, uh, that it is his willingness and his um, effort, Lord, with your power, your power that is uh, in your word, that it will not come back void. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Praise God. It is, again, a privilege and an honor to be with you all again this Lord's Day. And uh, I pray that God's grace and peace will be with you as we turn to his word. Amen. Amen. Would you get your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be reading this morning verses 15 through 21 together. Ephesians 5. 15 through 21, and when you find your place, would you please stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word together. I invite you to read along out loud with me. At the end of that reading, I'll say that this is the Word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond in true worship by saying thanks be to God. Let's begin Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we're actually in week seven of our liturgy series. I don't know why I said it that way. Liturgy. 
Week seven of our series on liturgy, where we are talking about uh, literally why we do what we do when we come together to worship the Lord corporately each and every Lord's Day. And so we started by um, looking at uh, the benediction. Uh, it seems odd to start at the end, uh, but we started at the end, at benediction, and talked about how that really the nature of what we are doing here together is coming to sit under the preaching of the better word uh, that the eternal blood of the covenant speaks over us, that Jesus himself speaks over us by his blood. And, and so we, we are coming to hear a better word. A better word than what? Well, Hebrews 12 compared that word, the better word, to the word of Abel's blood that spoke out against Cain when he had murdered his brother. And literally, uh, our sins speak out against us, and it was for our sins that Jesus Christ himself was murdered on a cross. But his blood, when poured out, did not cry, murderer, murderer, murderer. It cried out, forgive them, uh, speaking of all those who had put their faith and trust in him and was the very words of Jesus from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His word over us is a better word. It's what we call good news. It is something that we can, as we uh, sang about this morning, rejoice in, uh, and we ought to. But then we talked about acceptable worship. In fact, Hebrews 12 shows us that there is such thing as unacceptable, or excuse me, as acceptable worship. And logically, it follows that if there is such thing as acceptable worship, then there is such thing as unacceptable worship. And we spent a few weeks talking about the necessity of being able to see from Scripture uh, the import or the impetus for what we do when we gather together as the body of Christ. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about the collect and call to worship and how we are called together, not by me or Joel or any other man, but we are literally called together by God himself. In fact, our very identity as Christians, as the ecclesia, which literally means the called out assembly, uh, points to, that is who we are. We are the called out assembly who assembles. We assemble, and the word of the Lord gathers us every Lord's Day and scatters us. Again, like bellows, the, 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 the Lord's day acts like a bellows every week in our weekly rhythm to bring us together, sucking us all in together, and then pushing us all back out into the world that we might go with the seed of the gospel into our communities that it may spread and grow. Last week, we talked about our devotion to the public reading of scripture and today I want to talk to you believe it or not if you couldn't guess by the passage this morning I want to talk to you about spirit-filled singing spirit-filled singing it's interesting to note that whatever 
tradition, denomination, or background that you come from, one thing you can most usually count on in religious services is that there will be some kind of singing. Um, it is further interesting to note, this isn't in my notes this morning, but it bears mentioning, uh, that even in pagan worship, there most usually is some kind of singing. And in the Christian church, from the Gregorian chants of the Eastern Orthodox churches, to the rich hymnody of the Lutheran and Anglican and Methodist churches, to the modern praise songs of the Jesus movement made popular through uh, the head organization of our host church, Vineyard Church, to the rock and roll style productions of some other churches, however different each of these may be in style and perhaps even in the content of their songs, which we could debate about uh, the veracity of those things, that's not for today. Uh, in spite of that, one thing remains, they all sing. They all sing. In fact, so prevalent is the singing of God's people in their worship of Him that the word worship itself has almost become synonymous with singing. And in, in fact, uh, most people, when they talk about uh, the worship that takes place at their church, usually what they're referencing is the musical worship, is the singing portion of their liturgy, the musical part of their liturgy. And while worship certainly includes the musical part of our liturgy, including singing, but to limit worship merely to singing is to miss the meaning of worship altogether. It is to miss that even our arrival, arrival, our arrival, I am not doing great this morning. Our arrival, having planned and executed that plan to come and gather with God's people is part of our worship. When you, when you make a plan to be here and you execute that plan to be here, that is part of your worship. Uh, walking in obedience to God's word to not forsake the assembly and not forgetting that sitting in submission to the preached word is also a part of our worship of God. Right now, you are not singing. Right now, you are not standing. Right now, there is no music being played. You are sitting and you are listening to the preaching of God's word, and that in and of itself is also a part of our worship. All the different elements involved in our liturgy are a part of our worship. And that's important to remember. There is such unity, however, around singing that it must be evident that the question in view this afternoon is not uh, and should not be whether or not we ought to sing, but rather what and how we ought to sing. Now, believe it or not, that has been a question in the church. In fact, in the uh, Reformation, one of the magisterial reformers, Ulrich Zwingli, 
actually removed from the liturgy of the churches that he was leading all musical worship. Uh, this is interesting because of all of the magisterial reformers, uh, Luther and Calvin to mention two along with Zwingli, all of them were schooled in music. They were trained in music and Zwingli was likely uh, the most um, well-trained and, and well-adept at music and yet removed music completely from the liturgy of the church. He did so as a pendulum swing reaction to what was happening in the church at that time and because he understood how powerful uh, music and singing is. I will go so far as to say I think he was wrong um, and I think that his reaction was an overreaction and an overreach, uh, which I believe you also will see this morning. Um, but with that one thing set aside, for the most part, you will find it difficult to find anyone uh, who claims the name of Christ, who says that they are a church, who does not sing somehow and in some way. And so the question this morning, we're not answering, should or should we not sing? In fact, if we, I mean, we can answer it. Let's answer the question. Should we sing? Yes. Okay. If that was it, let's go home. Well, not go home. We have more liturgy to walk through together and worship together. But the answer is yes. Uh, but that is not all that we're talking about this morning. If we were to say that we were not to sing, we would have to entirely ignore the fact that there is, in fact, a whole songbook in the middle of our Bible uh, filled with 150 Songs. The book of Psalms is 150 songs. And so we would have to entirely ignore those songs. Not only that, we would have to entirely ignore the explicit command of Paul in our text this morning, in Ephesians chapter 5, that we are to sing to one another and to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. So one thing we can be sure of this morning, are you ready? The church sings. It's that simple. Even though nearly all churches sing, it is centrally around singing and music that even those who would hold to what we have already discussed as the regulative principle of worship, even all those who hold to that principle, there are those within that principle that disagree about what is acceptable and not acceptable in the public and corporate singing of God's people. And the spectrum runs from very limited, uh, meaning unaccompanied by any instrumentation, canonical psalms only singing, which means only singing vocally without instruments and only and ever the 150 psalms in the book of Psalms and nothing else to the exclusion of other songs also recorded in the canon, but not in the book of Psalms. Uh, so in other words, uh, the song of Moses, the song of Habakkuk, Mary's Magnificat, just to name a few, would all be excluded in that most restrictive uh, observance of uh, what it means to sing acceptable songs in the church. 
So the spectrum kind of begins on that end, although I guess we already mentioned Zwingli was even on the other side of that. And that spectrum runs all the way to the other end where any spontaneous extemporaneous songs made up on the spot to riffs of electric guitars and beating drums are also okay. And so that is a wide spectrum that uh, makes up how the church sings in different places and in different ways. And there are many uh, who would have problems with either end of that spectrum. And that's why there's actually a lot of strife uh, amongst brothers and sisters in the church on this issue um, because uh, those who are restricting themselves to the uh, unaccompanied singing of the 150 songs are doing so because they believe they, this is what must be done to be obedient to the Lord and to do else, to do anything else is disobedient, is sinful. Uh, and so that creates a, a great deal of emotional um, things tied up in this argument. And, and there are those at the other end who, uh, to say it in one way, exalt the uh, unrestricted singing of God's people to such a degree that to say that it ought to be restricted in any way, shape, or form is, is somehow sinful as well. And so these worship wars, as they have been called, have been going on for a long time. Listen to these critiques leveled at a budding young worship leader in the church and his new songs. And you may relate to some of these. Uh, it is written, there, there are several reasons for opposing it. One, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly and even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style. Because there are so many songs, you can't learn them all. It puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along without it. It's a money-making scene, and some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. Now, any one of us might look at some of the things happening in church music and worship today and might agree. But believe it or not, these things were written by a pastor in 1723, attacking Isaac Watts, the writer of great hymns like, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Joy to the World, and O oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. So I, I bring that up to just merely point out that these worship wars, so-called, have been going on for a very long time. And we sing together as a part of our catalog of singing is, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. In fact, when we were going through the Psalms uh, this summer, that was actually one of the tunes that we sang. Uh, some of the metrical Psalms, too, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. We sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. These are beautiful, theologically rich hymns of the church. And yet at that time, uh, there was at least one pastor who thought that they were uh, lewd and loose and money-making schemes. Now, this is not to say at face value 
that the pastor was wrong and Isaac Watts was right, simply because I like Isaac Watts' songs. That would be a mistake to take that position right off the bat. But merely to point out the same issues that we deal with today involving the singing in the church are not in any way new or unique to us, but is something the church has been wrestling with for a very long time. I bring all this up, not so that I can take pot shots at other traditions or people, but merely to point out that there is a divide uh, in the church as it relates to singing and music, and that this divide, such as it is, raises valid questions. Namely, are we, in the public and corporate worship of God, permitted to sing non-canonical songs? In other words, songs that are not recorded in the canon of Scripture. Are we permitted to do that? Or must we limit ourselves to the songs already written in Scripture, or even further limit ourselves to singing only the 150 songs of the Book of Psalms? Now, some, even hearing me say that, may think that the question itself is ridiculous. But I would like to show you why I believe that the question is not ridiculous, but actually valid. So let's go back to our text this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Paul here is instructing us in wisdom. And he is cautioning against the proneness in our own lives to depart what I would call orthopraxy in our lives. What does he say? He says, Look carefully then how you walk. Look carefully then how you walk. Now, Paul is not talking about uh, making sure that as you're walking along the way that you don't trip on a rock, right? He's not, he's not talking about the path that you are taking when you walk from the front door to the mailbox or to the grocery store or anything like that. The kind of walking that Paul is talking about is the kind of walking that relates to right living. And so Paul is cautioning us against our proneness to depart orthopraxy in our lives. You've heard of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, ortho meaning right, doxy meaning, or doxa meaning belief, right believing. Orthopraxy, praxy coming from the word praxia, which is to do or act or move, or in Paul's mind here, to walk. Uh, we first get this idea of orthopraxy. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We get this idea of orthopraxy when Paul condemns Peter to his face for not for removing himself from eating with the Gentiles. And it is said essentially that Peter was out of step, that he was out of step, that he was not in step, so to speak, with the gospel. In other words, Though he proclaimed a right belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ by removing himself from the Gentiles when the Judaizers arrived, that showed a practice that was not in step or out of step with the gospel. That's where we get this idea of orthopraxy. And so Paul here again is talking about walking. 
His idea of walking is where we get this idea of orthopraxy. He uses it, as I said, to describe Peter being out of step in Galatians. And then again here in Ephesians 4, it is central to the running idea that he's writing about in Ephesians 4. Look at verses 1 through 3. We'll get a reminder of where we were a couple of years ago as a church. Uh, verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 4. Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to what? Walk. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's not talking about, uh, he's not saying that there is some, there is like a Christian strut. That's not what he's saying. Okay, when he's talking about the manner in which you should walk, he is talking about the practice of these Christians' life. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he goes on again in chapter 4, verse 17. Now stating it in the negative. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, verse 17, that you must no longer, what? Walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What does he say? Verse 22, this walking is to, essentially, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. In other words, when we come to Christ, there is a new way for us or a new path for us to walk in. A new way, a new path that ought to rightly affect and disrupt the common practice of our lives. If you have somehow been able to join yourself with the church of Jesus Christ, if you have somehow been able to uh, associate yourselves with Christians and begin to follow in the practices of the church and the liturgy of the worship of God on the Lord's Day, and yet it not have affected and disrupted the common practice of your life, I need to warn you that perhaps you may believe that you are a Christian and you may not be. Because there is no way to come before a holy God and submit yourself to Him and not have the common practice of your life affected and disrupted. Now, does that mean that we don't fall sometimes? No, that's not what it means. It's why Paul is talking about walking in a way. Because it becomes the new trajectory of our life. And so when we come to Christ, there ought to be a new trajectory, a new path, a new way in which we walk that affects and disrupts 
the common practice of our lives. We would say that this is a way that is filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. Now, what that looks like is not necessarily what you were taught it looks like growing up. You know, the whole uh, don't drink, don't cuss, don't chew, and don't date girls that do. We're, we're not talking about necessarily, not that there are not some external behaviors that need to change, there are. But we are not so much talking about the external behaviors of our life as much as we are talking about the inward renewal of our lives as the desires of our heart are changed by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, which will impact your external behaviors. But to merely point out this list of do's and don'ts of external behaviors and say that's what a Christian looks like is to miss the faith completely. What a Christian looks like is a sinner who's been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, who struggles, who falls, who fails, and yet, unlike the unrighteous person who stays and wallows in their unrighteous person, Proverbs says that the difference in a righteous person is that they fall seven times and they get back up. In other words, there is a new trajectory for the pathway of their life. Praise God, that wasn't even in my notes. I've got to find my place again. Paul goes so far as to say that we must make best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, what I, I struggled with this in my notes and how to do this, but I want to like pause here for a second. Listen to what Paul is saying. Look carefully then how you why. He's, he's calling for a, a diligence. He's calling for uh, an awareness. He's calling for us to be ready. Okay? Uh, men, you understand this. I, I, I know some women will understand this as well, but I know my men understand this this morning. We walk into a new place, a new area, and especially if we have a wife, if we have kids, there is a, a heightened sense of awareness, of diligence that sets in for us when we walk into that new place. Is that not true? It, it is. Why? Because we understand that we have a role of protection that we are meant to walk in in our lives. And so we are, radar goes off a little bit and we tune in to what's happening. And that's essentially what Paul is calling for here. It's no mistake that in just over, just under a chapter, he's going to get to put on then the whole armor of God whereby you may be able to withstand the attacks of the evil one. So he's, he's calling for that kind of, of wartime diligence, okay? Wartime diligence. And he says then that we ought to, verse 16, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. This is, Paul is serious here. He, he says we, we need to have this kind of wartime diligence because the days are evil. Are you with me? Yes, sir. And because the days are evil, because we need to make best use of the time, we need to understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay? And so, as to a good soldier, he says... Hey, you're on duty, you're on post, don't be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, right? We've got some 
military and ex-military people in the room, you understand, you're on post, you're supposed to be keeping watch, they show up and you're drunk, you are in big, big, big time trouble. That's the best way to put it uh, pleasantly from the pulpit this morning. Don't be drunk with wine, he says, that's debauchery. Instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, let the Spirit of God heighten your awareness and sense of danger. Okay? And then do what? Sing. Do you, do you see why I struggle with this a little bit in my notes this morning? There is this, uh, this is definite, serious, I mean, it doesn't get more serious than this, and he moves from that to, therefore, sing. And not just sing, but sing, sing, sing. That's what he says. He says to make best use of the time because the days are evil, then tells us what the wise and spirit-filled will of the Lord is and that that it is, the, the wise and spirit-filled will of the Lord is that we should sing to one another. And in a sense, says that we should sing, sing, sing to one another using three different words for different kinds of songs. The emphasis is strong. We ought to sing. This is God's will for us. And if the command to sing is connected to making the best use of time because the days are evil, then make no mistake, church, that our songs together as the body of Christ are warfare. Our songs are Warfare. Now, this should come as no surprise when we consider the narratives of the Old Testament that shows us the victories for God's people as they lifted up shouts of praise to Jehovah at Jericho. When uh, King Jehoshaphat was king of Jerusalem a long, long time ago, when the children of Judah all worshiped the Lord from the high on down to the low. And Judah was a wealthy kingdom, and everybody's children were fed. And they went into war singing, Praise be the Lord our God, his mercy endures forever and ever. Now, if anybody remembers, that's an old Don Francisco song from way back in the day. I'm dating myself a little bit. If you haven't heard that one, go look it up. He was a good uh, storyteller, songwriter, in, in, uh, if you like... Um, well, we won't get into that. Never mind. But what happens? King Jehoshaphat has to go into war. What does he do? He sends the worshipers out in front, and they sing praises to God, and the people don't even have to lift their swords in battle. God fights for them. Jehovah fought for them, and they were delivered. The emphasis of this text also... Uh, gives further weight to what we call the ordinary means of grace. Or when we talk about Redemption Hill being an ordinary means of grace ministry, which is steeped 
in the very strong belief that as we dedicate ourselves to the very ordinary and simple things that God has called us to, that we will see his purposes prevail in our lives and see the people of God grow in strength and maturity through the primary means that God has provided for our sanctification, namely Lord's Day worship, where we receive the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments and by the way where we sin. So Paul says, make war, sing, sing, sing. Now this isn't the only place that Paul says this. A parallel verse to our text is found in Colossians 3. Would you turn there with me this morning, this afternoon? Man, I keep saying morning. I don't know if I'm ever going to not be able to say morning. It just keeps happening. You have to bear with me. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. See if you can spot the similarity. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, ready? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, here in Colossians, as in Ephesians, Paul is speaking to this change of the new life, of putting off the old man and putting on the new man, and again, the command to sing, sing, sing. The same construction of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So twice Paul does this. Now the Greek words he uses are psalmos, hymnos, and ode. In fact, ode is psalms, and the import of the Greek text is to sing psalms, hymns, and songs spiritual. Okay? These words, uh, psalmos, hymnos, and ode, did not contain the import for Paul as they do for us. Correct me if I'm wrong. We read the word psalms, and we think of immediately what? The book of psalms. We read the word hymns, and what immediately comes to mind? How great thou art, amazing grace. These hymns of tradition that we've learned in the church. And when we say or read spiritual songs, it's easy to merely think of whatever song might be made up or sung, as some have called it, by being led of the Spirit in the moment. And so when we just read the text simply in that way, it's easy to just import our own experience and our own context into what uh, um, Paul is writing here. But think about this. 
uh, the metrical psalms. So like we this this last summer, we sang the psalms together. We went to the 1650 Psalter and we sang the metrical psalms <laughs> together. But again, it's the 1650 Psalter. The metrical Psalter didn't come until over 1500 years after Paul was writing this text. So he certainly didn't have in mind the metrical psalms. Uh, Isaac Watts, as we heard this morning, was in the 1700s. So uh, he was not thinking of, oh God, our help in ages past. And he certainly wasn't thinking of any of the other number of songs that we sing as a church that have been written in the last uh, decade or so. Um, the Greek words, psalmos, hymnos, and ode, are actually three titles that are used for different psalms in the book of Psalms in the Greek Septuagint, which was the official Greek translation of the Old Testament that was in use at the time of the writing of the New Testament. So you wanted to know what Bible um, uh, most people had at the writing of the New Testament, what they had was the Greek Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, the translators titled some of the Psalms. And when they titled some of the Psalms, they used these three designations as titles. Some of the Psalms were called Psalmos, and some of the Psalms were called Hymnos, and some of the Psalms were called Ode. Each one representing a different type of Psalm within the canonical book of Psalms. And so as such, recognizing those titles from the Septuagint, some scholars have said that this use of these three titles in sequence represents a, a, a kind of speech, a figure of speech called a syn... Uh, I'm not going to be able to say this right. Synecdoche. Synecdoche. Which is merely a figure of speech in which a part of something is made to represent the whole. Okay, so we might say that uh, the Spurs won last night, and Spurs is a part of a whole title, the San Antonio Spurs NBA basketball team, that we recognize as representing the whole. So it's shorthand, you can say Spurs, and we all know what we're talking about. That would be a synecdoche, synecdoche. Now, whether or not Paul intends for this sequence of psalmos, hymnos, ode, spiritual, to be a synecdoche is an entirely different question. We don't know. He uses the same structure twice, once in Colossians 3 and once in Ephesians 5. I cannot say if Paul intended that or not. But the fact that psalmos, hymnos, and ode represent titles for some of the psalms is significant, and so it should not be taken lightly. So, if nothing else, the question is valid. Is Paul not merely saying 
that we should sing, sing, sing? Or is he saying that we should sing psalms, psalms, psalms? That's the question. And if it is psalms, 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 then the only positive command that we have to sing in the New Testament from this text would be only that we are to sing psalms, psalms, psalms. Now, if that's shorthand, that is the longest shorthand I've ever seen in my life. I'll just say that. Uh, and Luke, in the book of Luke and in Acts, uses a different shorthand uh, when he talks about the church singing from the book of Psalms when he says they sang from the book of Psalms. Uh, which would seem to be a much easier uh, shorthand to follow uh, and something that likely was already uh, written and being passed around at the time, at least part of the time, that Paul was writing some of his letters to the church. However, some say, yes, it is psalms, psalms, psalms. And personally, I cannot and I will not fault them for their desire to be obedient to the text of Scripture and their careful devotion to God as they restrict themselves to the verified and inspired texts of the canonical Psalms of the Book of Psalms. Truly, uh, you cannot uh, hurt yourself by devoting yourself to the Psalms, and, and I believe that we should and we ought to devote ourselves to the Book of Psalms. Uh, as we talked about when we went through the book of Psalms together, uh, it is an anatomy of the soul. And there is nothing left out in the book of Psalms, uh, in the book of Psalms. And I think that we are actually rather uh, negatively impacted when we neglect the book of Psalms, uh, the book of Psalms. Uh, because as we sang this morning, which I don't know that we've ever sang together as Redemption Hill, the utterance of a curse against the enemies of God until today. But that's a part of the Psalms. Lament is a part of the, the Psalms, and we've been trying to uh, add more lament to our praises. Now that sounds funny, doesn't it? Add lament to our praises? Let me tell you why that's important. Because you lament. Because we lament. We mourn. And if we neglect lamenting and mourning together as a body, then when you go home and you lament and mourn because you do and you will, you will think there is something wrong with you. Because in church it's always happy, clappy praises. And everyone seems to be joyful and happy all the time and never have any problems. And that's just not true. And the New Testament text actually calls us to mourn with those who mourn and to rejoice with those who rejoice so that in our singing, there may be a day where you don't have a care in the world, but your brother or sister next to you may be dying inside and their soul needs to sing a lament, a mournful cry of lament to the Lord that represents where their experience actually is in that moment. And you 
who do not have a care in the world at the moment are called to mourn with them, to lament with them, to sing that cry of lament as if it was your own in that moment. And there are times when you are dying inside. And yet the person next to you is experiencing, perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the millionth time, the joy of the Lord like they've never experienced before, where they are being enraptured in the presence of God and in His praises. And you, though you are lamenting in experience, you are called to rejoice with that person who is rejoicing and sing that rejoicing praise as if it was your own, trusting that God will lead you from mourning into dancing as he has promised to do in Christ Jesus in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. So we ought not neglect the songs. And I do believe that we are hurt uh, when we do. But you certainly can't be hurt by devoting yourself to the songs. Um, and so I, I cannot and I will not um, fault those who want to restrict themselves to the verified inspired text, the canonical songs in the book of Psalms. But in this series, we're talking about why we do what we do, why what we do, why we do what we do. So my own personal conviction and the practice of Redemption Hill is that our songs lifted up to God ought in the new covenant to be obedient to the further command of Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, that everything ought to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Not only that, but this command to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus comes after he has already said twice, just before in Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule and the word of Christ dwell richly. And then he says, that in all that we do, whether in word or in deed, we ought to do it explicitly in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says it also in this text in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this, don't get me wrong, this is not to say that the 150 canonical songs do not sing and testify to the Savior. They do. The Psalms are about Jesus, but not explicitly singing his name. Yet Paul says here that whatever we do ought to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why is this? I will tell you what I believe to be true. I believe that it is because it is necessary for us as Christians to give what I would call mediatorial, mediatorial glory explicitly to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What do I mean? Jesus Christ is our mediator. And how has he mediated for us? He has mediated for us by fulfilling all that was written about him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. So what is pointed to as the Messiah in the law, what is pointed to as the Messiah in the prophets, what is pointed to as the Messiah in the Psalms, 
implicitly is has been explicitly fulfilled by Jesus Christ, not metaphorically, actually, literally, personally, in space and time. And so I believe it is necessary for us as Christians, just as we would say in our own liturgy that it ought to be dialogical, that dialogically the people of God ought to lift up praises in the name of Jesus Christ for he has accomplished our mediation. And so he ought to receive explicit mediatorial glory as the Son of God, that which, that which is implicitly about Christ in types and shadows in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms, and throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures must be brought into the light of the new covenant and mediatorial glory given unto the Lamb that was slain and raised for guilty sinners. Not only that, that is my conviction according to this text that Paul is actually calling for us to lift up songs of praise that are explicitly in the name of Jesus. Not only that, but while psalmos, hymnos, and ode are titles given to some of the psalms in the Greek Septuagint, they are not the only titles. Uh, and hymnos is the least well-known of all the titles given to the songs in the Greek Septuagint. Whereas psalmos, I think, is used over 50 times, Ode, I think, is used over 40 times. There are other titles that are used in like manner. Uh, some, of the, some of the psalms actually will say like three of those things together, so there's overlap on some of the psalms. But hymnos is only used five times. Out of 150 psalms, the title of hymnos is only given five times. And beyond that, they are Greek names or titles that were in common use for music and songs at that time. Hymnos were songs that were sung by pagans as they praised the heroes of war and the gods that they believed gave them victory in war or they wanted to give them victory in war. And so that same title, Hymnos, to a Gentile represented songs that were sung during and after, before, during, and after war to praise the great heroes of war. Now let me ask you a question. When Paul is writing his letter to the church in Colossus, and he's writing his letter to the church in Ephesus, was he writing to a bunch of Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jews, or was he writing predominantly to Gentiles who had been converted to the Christian faith? He was writing predominantly to Gentiles who had been converted to the Christian faith. And so for them, in their space and time and context, hymnos did not represent the book of Psalms. It, 
They could not, unless they had applied themselves to the study of the Jewish scriptures in the Greek Septuagint, they would not have recognized the word hymnos as a title for the book of Psalms, but rather would have understood when Paul is saying, guys, the time is urgent, be alert. Our songs are our warfare, and he uses hymnos that are meant to be sung by the church as warfare. But what does he say? Not the old songs that you knew before. We put those off with the old man. We're putting on the new man. We have new hymns, new hymnos in the name of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so these words, psalmos, hymnos, and ode, yes, they were used as titles in the Psalms, but hymnos especially were songs that were sung for heroes of war and the gods that the pagans believed had given them victory or they wanted to give them victory. And ode was a word that was used basically as a catch-all for songs. It's like, ode was like any old song that could be written. So common Greek terms for different kinds of songs were given to the titles of the different Hebrew praises when the translation was made. So, in light of that, and again, I am not a Greek and Hebrew scholar. I am endeavoring to faithfully preach the word as God has called me to, but I am, I'm not a Greek and Hebrew scholar. I find the arguments compelling, I think that they are worth listening to, but my own conviction is that um, we ought not restrict ourselves to the 150 canonical psalms. And, and, and I mean that when I say that. I don't merely mean that we should allow other psalms. I mean that we ought not restrict ourselves only to the singing of the 150 canonical psalms, because if we do, then we are, in effect, by our worship, robbing Christ of mediatorial glory explicitly. Not only that, but I find it an odd hermeneutic, to say the least, that I ought to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, that I ought to preach in the name of the Lord Jesus, and only pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, and only preach in the name of the Lord Jesus, explicitly. But when I sing the praises of Yahweh, who is Jesus, that I should not sing in the name of the Lord Jesus. I find that an odd hermeneutic. And though even some of the Hebrew titles for the Psalms are written as prayers, literally in the title it will say prayer, yet somehow that prayer, as I sing it, should not follow the same rule for praying but should rather follow the rule of the reading of the text of Scripture, which even when we sing the 150 metrical psalms, 
we are not singing the exact text of Scripture. Not only that, but this would require direct disobedience to the very songs that I'm singing when the Psalms themselves call for us repeatedly, and if you read through the book of Psalms, you'll see this repeatedly over and over and over again. What does it say? Sing a new song to the Lord. Sing a new song to the Lord. And if I'm going to restrict my singing only to the 150 canonical songs, then I literally have to disobey the command that I am singing. I have to not do what Scripture is telling me to do. I find that an odd hermeneutic. To say nothing of the command to use instruments to praise the Lord that's found in the book of Psalms, and then to come away from it and say that the new covenant is better, but don't use instruments. I believe that this is because there is an expectation. The reason I believe this, this so strongly is because I believe that there is an expectation. I believe that Paul has an expectation that as the people of God continue to lament and praise, that they will continue to lift those laments and praises to God in prayerful song. And this seems to be the pattern of the New Testament. Luke 1, we see Mary's Magnificat. Luke 1, again, we see the song of Zechariah. Luke 2, we see recorded for us the angelic doxology. Luke 2, again, we see Simeon's Nunc Dimittis, and even Calvin included the singing of the Nunc Dimittis, of Simeon's song, and the singing of the Decalogue, and the singing of the Apostles' Creed in the Genevan liturgy. We see a Pauline Christological hymn in Colossians 1. We see what's referred to as the Carmen Christi, which is the song of Christ in Philippians 2. We, sing a, we see a new song being sung in Revelation 5 and 14. And again, we see the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb being sung together in Revelation 15. We see the Hallelujah Chorus in Revelation 19. And in 1 Corinthians 14, we see uh, what some would term charismatic hymnody where Paul is instructing the regular members of the body when they gather together, he says, one come with a lesson, one come with a hymn, one come with a word. He says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So I would say, and the practice of our church has been, that we will uh, sing explicitly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have, uh, by virtue of our own backgrounds and traditions as we've come together, neglected. I would say we have neglected the Psalms. And so it has been our desire to grow in singing the Psalms together. I'm not saying don't sing them. I'm saying sing the Psalms. But I'm also saying that in the New Covenant, we should also sing explicitly to the Lord Jesus. But should we just sing anything? No, we should not. Again, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul would say that all things should be done decently and in order, 
but let's go back to our original text, Ephesians 5. What did Paul say? What did the text say? He said something that's easy to pass over. He said, be wise, not foolish. Be filled with the Spirit. In other words, where in some traditions it is exalted to empty the mind in order to sing to God. We should remember what we read in John chapter 4 when Jesus said that God is searching for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, we are not ever to merely empty our minds so that we might be overtaken by emotion, but rather our minds should actually be active as we are singing praise to God. This is why Paul instructs that we ought to be wise and not foolish and filled with the Spirit. And Paul says as much again in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. He says, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. In other words, Paul is saying that the praises of God's people are not meant to be mindless, emotional hubbub, but rather ought to be spirit-filled, mind-active singing to God. Remember, Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, Lex Vivendi. The law of praying is the law of believing, which is the law of living. As we sing and as we pray and as we worship, believe it or not, it is instructing us what we ought to believe. And what we actually believe will impact how we live. Paul understands this. It's why he instructs in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, as you come together to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, let the word of Christ be dwelling in you so richly that those songs are not mere mindlessness, but rather are filled with the truth of God's word in Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Remember, Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, Lex Avendi. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we sing to and for and about Jesus Christ. And we will do that in types and shadows, but we will also do that explicitly. We will sing the songs, for they are about him, and they are for us to sing, and we ought not to neglect them. But we will sing songs that instruct our minds and that inflame our hearts to fan into flame the affections and direct them to our great hero. So let us him, Christ, let us oday him, in all manner of songs, and let us psalm him 
and lift up our praise, for he is our great king and our great God. He has rescued us by his blood and accomplished our redemption through his death and resurrection for us and in our place. Amen? Glory be to Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word today, a word that instructs us not only to sing, but to sing, 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 to sing our praises to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our great Redeemer. Thank you for this reminder that our songs are not a mere theological exercise or a liturgical practice, but they are warfare, that we are engaging in spiritual warfare when we lift up our prayerful songs to you, whether they be songs of lament or songs of praise, whether they are songs filled with rejoicing or songs filled with questioning. God, they are songs that we lift to you even as you have revealed yourself to us. We return your praises to you and expect that, God, you will also answer our prayerful cry. I thank you, God, for this church and for this body. And God, as we continue to grow together in grace, as we continue to grow together in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, would you, God, by your spirit, continue to mature and strengthen this body. And God, would you fill our singing with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as we move into a time of communion.